1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. A little bit of background for you on this story. Twain likely encountered the Mort d'Arthur in 1880 when someone in his household bought Sidney Lanier's boulderized edition, the Boy's King Arthur. He first conceived of the idea behind a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court in December of 1884 and worked on it for four years, from 1885 to 1889. The principal part of the writing was done at Twain's summer home at Elmira, New York, and was completed at Hartford, Connecticut. It was first published in England by Chatto and Windus under the title A Yankee at the Court of King Arthur in December of 1889. Writer and critic William Dean Howells called it Twain's best work and an object lesson in democracy. The work was met with some indignation in Great Britain as it was perceived as a direct attack on the hereditary and aristocratic institutions. He didn't, make, he didn't make any friends in Great Britain with this story. And now, chapters 19 and 20, from a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. Hope you enjoy it. Sandy and I were on the road again, next morning, bright and early. It was so good to open up one's lungs and take in whole, luscious barrels full of the blessed God's untainted, dew-fashioned, woodland-scented air once more after suffocating body and mind for two days and nights in the moral and physical stenches of that intolerable old buzzard roost. Mean for me! Of course the place was all right and agreeable enough for Sandy, for she had been used to high life all her days. Poor girl! Her jaws had had a wearisome rest now for a while, and I was expecting to get the consequences. I was right, but she had stood by me most helpfully in the castle, and had mightily supported and reinforced me with gigantic foolishnesses which were worth more for the occasion than wisdom's double their size. So I thought she had earned a right to work her mill for a while, if she wanted to, and I felt not a pang when she started up. Now turn we on to Sir Marhaus that rode with the damsel of thirty winter of age southward. Are we going to see if you can work up another half-stretch on the trail of the cowboys, Sandy? Even so, fair lord. Go ahead, then. "'I won't interrupt this time, if I can help it. "'Begin over again, start fair, and shake out all your reefs, "'and I will load my pipe and give good attention.' "'Now we turn, we, unto Sir Malhouse, "'that rode with the damsel of thirty winter of age southward. "'And so they came into a deep forest, "'and by fortune they were knighted, "'and rode along in a deep way, "'and at the last they came into a cortilage "'where abode the Duke of South Marches, "'and there they asked harbour, and on the morn the duke sent unto Sir Marhaus, and bade him make him ready. And so Sir Marhaus arose, and armed him, and there was a mass sung afore him, and he brake his fast, and so mounted on horseback in the court of the castle, there they should do the battle. So there was the duke already on horseback, clean armed, and his six sons by him, and every each had a spear in his hand, and so they encountered, whereas the duke and his two sons break their spears upon him but Sir Marhouse held up his spear, and touched none of them. Then came the four sons by couples, and two of them break their spears, and so did the other two, and all this while Sir Marhouse touched them not. Then Sir Marhouse ran to the duke, and smote him with his spear, that horse and man fell to the earth. And so he served his sons. And then Sir Marhouse alight down, and bade the duke yield him, or else he would slay him. And then some of his sons recovered, and would have set upon Sir Marhouse, then Sir Marhaus said to the duke, Cease thy sons, or else I will do the uttermost to you all. When the duke saw he might not escape the death, he cried to his sons, and charged them to yield them to Sir Marhaus, And they kneeled all down and put the pommels of their swords to the knight, and so he received them. And then they helped up their father, and so by their common assent promised unto Sir Marhaus never to be foes unto King Arthur, and thereupon at Whitsuntide after, to come he and his sons and put them in the king's grace. Footnote. The story is borrowed, language and all, from the Mort d'Arthur. Mark Twain. Even so standeth the history, fair Sir Voss. Now ye shall wit that that very duke and his six sons are they whom but few days past you did also overcome and send to Arthur's court. Why, Sandy, you can't mean it. And I speak not sooth, let it be the worst for me. Well, well, well. "'Now who would ever have thought it? "'One whole duke and six dukelets. "'Why, Sandy, it's an excellent haul. Knight errantry is a most chuckle-headed trade, "'and it is tedious hard work, too, "'but I begin to see that there is money in it, after all, "'if you have luck. "'Not that I would ever engage in it as a business, "'for I wouldn't. "'No sound and legitimate business "'can be established on a basis of speculation. "'A successful whirl in the knight-errantry line,' Now what is it when you blow away the nonsense and come down to the cold packs It's just a corner and pork that's all and you can't make anything else out of it you're rich, yes, suddenly rich for about a day, maybe a week then somebody corners the market on you and down goes your bucket shop ain't that so Sandy whethersoever it be that my mind miscarrieth be ringing simple language in such sort that the words do seem to come endlong and overthwart there's no use in beating about the bush and trying to get around it that way, Sandy. It's so. just as I say. I know it's so. And moreover, when you come right down to the bedrock, knight-errantry is worse than pork. For whatever happens, the pork's left, and so somebody's benefited anyway. But when the market breaks, in a night-errantry whirl, and every knight in the pool passes in his checks, what have you got for assets? "'just a rubbish pile of battered corpses "'and a barrel or two of busted hardware. "'Can you call those assets? "'Give me pork every time. "'Am I right?' "'Ah, peradventure my head, "'being distraught by the manifold matters "'whereunto the confusions of these "'but late adventured haps and fortunes "'whereby not I alone nor you alone, "'but every each of us, me th- "'No, it's not your head, Sandy. "'Your head's all right, as far as it goes, "'but you don't know business.' that's where the trouble is. It unfits you to argue about business, and you're wrong to be always trying. However, that aside, it was a good haul anyway, and will breed a handsome crop of reputation in Arthur's court. And speaking of the cowboys, what a curious country this is for women and men that never get old. Now there's Morgan Le Fay, as fresh and young as a vassar bullet, to all appearances, and here is this old Duke of the South marches, "'still slashing away with sword and lance at his time of life "'after raising such a family as he has raised. "'As I understand it, Sir Gawain killed seven of his sons, "'and still he had six left for Sir Marhouse and me to take into camp. "'And then there was that damsel of sixty winter of age "'still excursioning around in her frosty bloom. "'How old are you, Sandy?' "'It was the first time ever I struck a still place in her. "'The mill had shut down for repairs.' Or something. We'll return with Chapter 20 right after these sponsor messages.
0: This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. Talk to your local agent
1: today. And now, Chapter 20, The Ogre's Castle. Between six and nine we made ten miles, which was plenty for a horse carrying triple, man, woman, and armor. Then we stopped for a long nooning under some trees by a limpid brook. Right so came by and by a knight riding, and as he drew near he made Dolores moan, and by the words of it I perceived that he was cursing and swearing. Yet nevertheless was I glad of his coming, for that I saw he bore a bulletin board whereon in letters all of shining gold was writ, Use Peterson's prophylactic toothbrush, all the go. I was glad of his coming, for even by this token I knew him for a knight of mine. It was Sir Madoc de la Montaigne, a burly great fellow whose chief distinction was that he had come within an ace of sending Sir Lancelot down over his horse tail once. He was never long in a stranger's presence without finding some pretext or other to let out that great fact. But there was another fact of nearly the same size, which he never pushed upon anybody unasked, and yet never withheld when asked. That was, that the reason he didn't quite succeed was, that he was interrupted and set down over the horsetail himself. This innocent vast lubber did not see any particular difference between the two facts. I liked him, for he was earnest in his work, and very valuable and he was so fine to look at with his broad mailed shoulders and the grand leonine set of his plumed head and his big shield with its quaint device of a gauntleted hand clutching a prophylactic toothbrush with motto, Try no you didn't. This was a toothwash that I was introducing. He was a weary, he said, but he would not alight. He said he was after the stove-polished man. With this he broke out cursing and swearing anew. The bulletin boarder referred to was Sir Osace of Surlews, a brave knight, and of considerable celebrity on account of his having tried occasions in a tournament once, with no less a mogul than Sir Gaheris himself, although not successfully. He was of a light and laughing disposition, and to him nothing in this world was serious. It was for this reason that I had chosen him to work up a stove-polish sentiment. There were no stoves yet, and so there could be nothing serious about stove-polish." "'All that that agent needed to do "'was deftly and by degrees "'prepare the public for the great change, "'and have them established in predilections "'towards neatness against the time "'when the stove should appear upon the stage. "'Sir Maddock was very bitter, "'and break out anew with cursings. "'He said he had cursed his soul to rags, "'and that he would not get down from his horse. "'Neither would he take any rest "'or listen to any comfort, "'until he should have found Sir Osace "'and settled this account. "'It appeared,' By what I could piece together of the unprofaned fragments of his statement that he had chanced upon Sir Osaces at dawn of the morning, and had been told that if he would make a short cut across the fields and swamps and broken hills and glades, he could head off a company of travellers who would be rare customers for prophylactics and toothwash with characteristic zeal, Sir Maddock had plunged away at once upon this quest, and after three hours of awful cross lot riding, had overhauled his game, and behold, it was the five patriarchs that had been released from the dungeons the evening before. "'Poor old creatures! "'It had been twenty years since any of them had had a snag or remnant of a tooth.' "'Blank, blank, blank him,' said Sir Maddock, "'and I do not stove-polish him, and I may find him. "'Leave it to me, for never no knight that height, o oh, say, sir, "'ought else may do me this disservice and bite on live, "'and I may find him, the which I have thereunto sworn a great oath this day.' and with these words and others he lightly took his spear and got him thence. In the middle of the afternoon we came upon one of those very patriarchs ourselves, in the edge of a poor village. He was basking in the love of relatives and friends whom he had not seen for fifty years, and about him and caressing him were also descendants of his own body whom he had never seen at all till now. But to him these were all strangers, his memory was gone, his mind was stagnant, It seemed incredible that a man could outlast half a century shut up in a dark hole like a rat, but here were his old wife and some old comrades to testify to it. They could remember him as he was in his freshness and strength of his young manhood, when he kissed his child and delivered it to his mother's hands and went away into that long oblivion. The people at the castle could not tell within half a generation the length of time the man had been shut up there for his unrecorded and forgotten offense, but this old wife knew— and so did her old child, who stood there among her married sons and daughters, trying to realize a father who had been to her a name, a thought, a formless image, a tradition, all her life, and now was suddenly concreted into actual flesh and blood and set before her face. It was a curious situation, yet it is not on that account that I have made room for it here, but on account of a thing which seemed to me still more curious to wit. "'that this dreadful matter brought from these downtrodden people "'no outburst of rage against these oppressors. "'They had been heritors and subjects of cruelty and outrage so long "'that nothing could have startled them but a kindness. "'Yes, here was a curious revelation, indeed, "'of the depth to which these people had been sunk into slavery. "'Their entire being was reduced to a monotonous, "'dead level of patience, resignation, "'dumb, uncomplaining acceptance of whatever might befall them in this life.' "'Their very imagination was dead. "'When you can say that of a man, he has struck bottom. "'I reckon there is no lower deep for him. "'I rather wished I had gone some other road. "'This was not the sort of experience for a statesman to encounter "'who was planning out a peaceful revolution in his mind. "'For it could not help bringing up the unget-aroundable fact "'that all gentle cant and philosophizing to the contrary notwithstanding.' "'No people in the world ever did achieve their freedom "'by goody-goody talk and moral suasion. "'It being immutable law that all revolutions that will succeed "'must begin in blood, whatever may answer afterward. "'If history teaches anything, it teaches that what this folk needed, "'then, was a reign of terror and a guillotine. "'And I was the wrong man for them.' Two days later, toward noon, "'Sandy began to show signs of excitement and feverish expectancy.' "'She said we were approaching the ogre's castle. "'I was surprised, into an uncomfortable shock. "'The object of our quest had gradually dropped out of my mind. "'This sudden resurrection of it made it seem quite a real "'and startling thing for a moment, "'and roused up in me a smart interest. "'Sandy's excitement increased every moment, "'and so did mine, for that sort of thing's catching. "'My heart got the thumping. "'You can't reason with your heart. "'It has its own laws.' And thumps about things which the intellect scorns. Presently, when Sandy slid from the horse, motioned me to stop, and went creeping stealthily, with her head bent nearly to her knees, toward a row of bushes that bordered a declivity, the thumpings grew stronger and quicker. And they kept it up while she was gaining her ambush and getting her glimpse over the declivity, and also while I was creeping to her side on my knees. Her eyes were burning now as she pointed with her finger and said in a panting whisper. The castle, the castle, lo, where it looms! What a welcome disappointment I experienced! I said, "Castle? It's nothing but a pigsty, a pigsty with a wattle fence around it." She looked surprised and distressed. The animation faded out of her face, and during many moments she was lost in thought and silence. Then. It was not enchanted aforetime, she said in a musing fashion, as if to herself. And how strange is this marvel, and how awful, that to the one perception it is enchanted, and dight in a base and shameful aspect, yet to the perception of the other it is not enchanted, hath suffered no change, but stands firm and stately still, girt with its moat and waving its banners in the blue air from its towers. And God shield us, how it pricks the heart to see again these gracious captives, and the sorrow deepened in their sweet faces. We have tarried along. And are to blame. I saw my cue. Like the castle was enchanted to me, not to her. It would be wasted time to try to argue her out of her delusion. It couldn't be done. I must just humor it. So I said, Hmm, this is a common case the enchanting of a thing to one eye and leaving it in its proper form to another. You have heard of it before, Sandy, though you haven't happened to experience it. But no harm is done. In fact, "'It is lucky, the way it is. "'If these ladies were hogs to everybody and to themselves, "'it would be necessary to break the enchantment, "'and that might be impossible if one failed to find out "'the particular process of the enchantment. "'And hazardous, too, "'for in attempting a disenchantment without the true key, "'you are liable to err, "'and turn your hogs into dogs, "'and the dogs into cats, "'the cats into rats, and so on, "'and end by reducing your materials to nothing finally.' or to an odorless gas which you can't follow, which, of course, amounts to the same thing. But here, by good luck, no one's eyes but mine are under the enchantment, and so it is of no consequence to dissolve it. These ladies remain ladies to you, and to themselves, and to everybody else, and at the same time they will suffer in no way from my delusion, for when I know that an ostensible hog is a lady, that's enough for me. I know how to treat her. "'Thank you, my sweet Lord. Thou talkest like an angel, and I know that thou wilt deliver them, for that thou art minded to great deeds and art, as strong a knight of your hands, and as brave to will and do, as any that is on live. I will not leave a princess in the sty, Sandy, and those three under, that to my disordered eyes are starveling swineherds. "'The ogres! Are they charged also? It is most wonderful. Now am I fearful.' "'For how canst thou strike with sure aim "'when five of their nine cubits of stature "'are to thee invisible? "'Go wearily, fair sir. "'This is a mightier emprise than I went.' "'You go easy, Sandy. "'All I need to know is "'how much of an ogre is invisible. "'Then I know how to locate his vitals. "'Don't you be afraid. "'I'll make short work of these bunco steerers "'Stay where you are.' "'I left Sandy kneeling there, "'corpse-faced, but plucky and hopeful.' and rode down to the pigsty and stuck up a trade with the swineherds. I won their gratitude by buying out all the hogs at a lump sum of sixteen pennies, which was rather above latest quotations. I was just in time, for the church, the lord of the manor, and the rest of the tax-gatherers would have been along next day and swept off pretty much all the stock, leaving the swineherds very short of hogs and sandy out of princesses. But now the tax-people could be paid in cash, and there would be a stake left besides." one of the men had ten children, and he said that last year when a priest came and of his ten pigs took the fattest one for tithes, the wife burst out upon him, and offered him a child, and said, "'Thou beast without bounds of mercy! Why leave me my child, yet rob me of the wherewithal to feed it?' How curious! The same thing had happened in the Wales of my day, under this same old established church, which was supposed by many to have changed its nature when I changed its disguise. I sent the three men away and then opened the sty-gate, and beckoned Sandy to come, which she did, and not leisurely, but with the rush of a prairie fire. And when I saw her fling herself upon those hogs, with tears of joy running down her cheeks, and strain them to her heart, and kissed them, and caressed them, and called them reverently by grand princely names, I was ashamed of her, ashamed of the human race. We had to drive those hogs home, ten miles, and no ladies were ever more pickle-minded or contrary. THEY WOULD STAY IN NO ROAD, NO PATH, THEY BROKE OUT THROUGH THE BRUSH ON ALL SIDES, AND FLOWED AWAY IN ALL DIRECTIONS, OVER ROCKS AND HILLS, AND THE ROUGHEST PLACES THEY COULD FIND, AND THEY MUST NOT BE STRUCK OR ROUGHLY ACCOSTED. SANDY COULD NOT BEAR TO SEE THEM TREATED IN WAYS UNBECOMING THEIR RANK. THE TROUBLESOMEST OLD sow OF THE LOT HAD TO BE CALLED MY LADY, AND YOUR HIGHNESS, LIKE THE REST. IT IS ANNOYING AND DIFFICULT TO SCOUR AROUND AFTER HOGS IN ARMOR. There was one small countess, with an iron ring in her snout and hardly any hair on her back, that was the devil for perversity. She gave me a race of an hour, over all sorts of country, and then we were right where we had started from, having made not a rod of real progress. I seized her at last by the tail, and brought her along squealing. When I overtook Sandy she was horrified, and said it was in the last degree indelicate to drag a countess by her train.' We got the hogs home just at dark, most of them. The Princess Norvins de Morganore was missing, and two of her ladies in waiting, namely Miss Angela Bowen and the Demoiselle Elaine Courtmaines, the former of these two being a young black sow with a white star in the forehead, and the latter a brown one with thin legs and a slight limp in the forward shank on the starboard side. A couple of tryingest blisters to dry that I ever saw. Also among the missing were several more baronesses, and I wanted them to stay missing. But no, all that sausage meat had to be found, so servants were sent out with torches to scour the woods and hills to that end. Of course, the whole drove was housed in the house, and great guns, Well, I never saw anything like it, nor ever heard anything like it, and never smelt anything like it. It was like an insurrection in a gasometer. Thanks for joining us for Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court chapters 19 and 20. We'll return next week, Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, send a review, tell a friend, and we'll be back soon.